Good morning, Grace Chapel. My name's Adam, and I'm one of the pastors at Grace. Uh, A quick note before we begin. Due to the way we have to film and edit, this sermon was actually filmed on Friday, November 6th. So if you're listening to me and you find yourself wondering, you know, why did Adam not mention that troubling thing that happened over the weekend? That's why. So back on October 4th, we started a series on faith and politics, and we started it by discussing the idea of dual citizenship. This idea that followers of Jesus have to balance two allegiances in their lives. One is the kingdom that we live in now, our our nation, and the other is the kingdom of God. And how a proper understanding of those two can actually help us to bridge the political divide that we all find ourselves in. Then last week, we started a two-week deep dive into each of those citizenships. Pastor Brian started by leading us through our responsibilities to our earthly nations. And he reminded us of Jesus' teaching, that beautiful teaching to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, and to do both with great love. So if you haven't heard either of those, you can feel free to pause me right now, go back and watch them, and then come back and join us. Or you can stick with me now and catch up, however you want to do it. But one more comment before we begin. Uh, As I wrote this message, I didn't know the outcome of the election. Even as I speak today, I don't know the outcome, and I don't even know if we will know by the time you watch this. So I realize that for many of us, we are still processing, and for some of us, that processing is far more painful than others. So I'm not speaking this morning specifically into the outcome. Instead, what I want to focus on is our second allegiance, that allegiance to the kingdom of God, and what it means with that allegiance for the church to grasp or to give this season. So for me, this story actually starts my freshman year of college. I found myself sitting in the grass on this beautiful spring day with friends when I had a crisis. I was attending a Christian college, and so for the first time in my academic career, I was around a ton of Christians, and I was loving the conversations I was having. We were talking about Jesus, faith, and theology, and I found myself intoxicated by the experience. But as we talked, something occurred to me. Uh, I was sitting in the grass, the sun was shining, a light warm breeze was blowing, there was this crystal clear blue sky and this beautiful red, white, and blue American flag was flying. And I found myself looking at it and thinking about the fact that I I grew up the grandson of two World War II veterans in a family with a proud service tradition in every branch of the military. Uh, The fact that I'd grown up understanding and the importance of respect to our country and our flag. And about the fact that, I don't remember who, but I'd been taught at one point that the American flag was never supposed to touch the ground. But as I sat there looking at the flag and having this conversation, my Bible caught my eye sitting there in the grass and the dirt next to me. And I had a crisis. It it was a crisis of allegiance and priority, uh, a crisis that asked me to make a decision about my faith and my national, cultural, political identity. You know, what, what came first and what came second? Those in the days of Jesus had to make a similar decision about their allegiance and priority. I mean, Jesus and all of his followers had to grow up trying to somehow balance this required allegiance to Rome and their nation and their people and their religion. And and Jesus even had to balance these issues among his own followers. Uh, Those that followed Jesus had great expectations for him and his movement, expectations that Jesus almost always refused to follow through on. So let me show you what I mean. In Luke's biography of the life of Jesus, he records this crazy incident with Jesus and his disciples. And this is what he says. He says, As the time drew near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on 
his way to Jerusalem. Two things to notice here that I think are really interesting. First, the phrase Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is both the political and the spiritual capital of the nation. So it is kind of like you or me saying, I'm going to set out for Washington, D.C., but with a much stronger religious undertone. And with this phrase, Luke begins an extended section of his biography that takes you all the way to chapter 18 or 19. And in this section, what he does is he focuses on Jesus' teaching on two things. First, the, the cost of discipleship. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Jesus teaches a lot about this. The second is Jesus' teaching on the coming suffering that he would have to endure. Jesus actually knows that he is heading to his death here. So this is why he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. So as you read this section, as you listen this morning, if you go and read anything from Luke 9 to Luke 19, be thinking about Jesus as a man who knows he's going to die, a man who knows he only has a few months to live, and through every word he is desperately trying to prepare his disciples to be the leaders in this movement after he's gone. Second thing, his disciples, even though he's been telling them repeatedly about suffering and death, they cannot get their minds around Jesus' real mission. They're still focused on their expectation for Jesus to be the political Messiah that frees them militarily from the grip of Rome. And how do we know this? Well, let's read on. It says, When James and John saw this, that, that they'd been refused housing, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? What? I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit harsh to you? That the Samaritans and Jews had hated each other. And for hundreds of years, they'd hated each other. The, the Samaritans had actually been forcibly relocated onto the land by the Assyrian Empire, right around the same time that many Jews were forcibly moved away by the Assyrians. After those Jews returned, the Samaritans stayed there, and those two groups had always been in conflict uh, ever since. So the Samaritans refused Jesus and his followers' housing, and James and John, when that happens, they ask if they can destroy them with fire. A uh, little... Intense, if you ask me. And Jesus, he apparently agrees because it says this, it just says Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on their way to another village. The disciples are expecting a Messiah who comes with fire, a Messiah who conquers Rome, a Messiah who puts Jerusalem back in the center of the map and back in the center of the world, a, a Messiah who takes the Jews and puts them on top of all of those Samaritans, all those others, the Gentiles, the Romans. Uh, a Messiah who actually takes them and puts them in turn on top of the Jews as the rulers. In fact, just before this section, the disciples were arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus would bring about. And Jesus refuses to cooperate with that agenda. He rebukes them. Uh, you see, Jesus had been going around announcing this different kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God, and he'd been, he'd been doing it strangely. He'd been talking about a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. He'd been talking about a kingdom that isn't built about the, around the strong lording over the weak or the rich oppressing the poor or one people group dominating another, but instead is a kingdom built on love and suffering and sacrifice and solidarity with those on the margins. And that kingdom is coming about through different means than any other kingdom in history. I mean, think about this for a second. Rome was built through bloodshed. Rome was maintained through bloodshed. The, the primary duty of any Roman ruler and authority, no matter where they were in the empire, was to maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And how did they maintain that power? 
Well, through power, through intimidation, and through violence. Our word decimate comes from the Roman practice of killing every tenth male in a city or province that rebelled against them. This was how empires were built. This was how they were maintained. All through history, this was how it was done. This was the normal standard operating expectation. Like this was what you did. And Jesus comes along and he starts announcing a different kingdom. So what does Rome do? Well, exactly what you would expect them to do. They kill Jesus. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, reading the story of Jesus, living in a modern culture with ideals like justice, dignity, and human rights for all, ideals that came from Jesus and were inconceivable in Jesus' day, and Rome is nowhere to be seen. How did this happen? That's because Jesus was building a different kingdom. Later in Luke, Jesus spends a ton of time teaching on this new kingdom. And some Pharisees, they come, this is still on this journey to, towards Jerusalem. They come to him and they say, Jesus, like, you got to go. you got to get out of here. Herod Antipas, the current ruler, he wants to kill you. So what does Jesus do? Does he run? Does he tone down his message? Does he you know, <laughs> clear his throat and look around nervously and, and look for some soldiers? No. Jesus pokes the bear. Uh, in Jesus' day, just so you know, to call someone a fox was the equivalent of you or I calling somebody a fraud. But it was more than that. You were, you were telling someone that they were insignificant, sly, and mixed with evil. So how does Jesus respond to this threat on his life? This is what he says. He says, go and tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Jesus pushes back against power. He refuses to be intimidated even when faced with his own death. At another point in Luke's account, a man comes to Jesus and he says that he wants to be his follower. He wants to be a disciple. Now, remember how Jesus just responded to Herod? And keep in mind the fact that the eagle is the symbol of Rome. So that for, for Rome, that is their symbol, this beautiful eagle. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus replied to this man. He said, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. Jesus isn't just talking about cuddly animals here. He is saying that his kingdom is not like their kingdom. Don't look to Rome. Don't look to Herod. Do it for a blueprint. It was a new type of kingdom. And in building it, Jesus wasn't afraid to speak truth to power, and he wasn't about to stop. So what kind of kingdom was Jesus building? Well, this is the, the best part of the story, the, the part that still boggles the mind when you think about it today. Jesus was building a kingdom of losers. He tells his disciples this, actually. In the passage we just read last week from Matthew's biography, where he tells his disciples to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, in that same conversation, he says to them this. He says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give it up for me, if you give your life up for me, you will find it. Now, imagine for a second if one of our political candidates had spent the last six months talking about how they were going to lose how they were going to suffer and die, and how they expected their followers to suffer in the same way they did. You and I would probably be a bit confused. But that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. At one point, as they near the end of this journey, as they climb the long road to Jerusalem, Jesus makes this abundantly clear. He gathers them and he says, Listen, we are going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, that's the phrase he uses for himself, will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. 
Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus is preparing to die. And even after that explanation, the disciples still don't get it. The mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, she comes and she asks him for a favor. And this is what she says to him immediately after this explanation that we just read. She says, Jesus, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Now, I'm not sure about you, but after what Jesus just said, I don't know that I personally would be asking for him to take my kids along on the ride. But this idea of Jesus, it, it was so revolutionary that they just couldn't wrap their minds around it. And, and honestly, we still have trouble wrapping our minds around it today. And so Jesus answered them this way. He said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I am about to drink? And in one of my all-time favorite lines in scripture, one of those lines where you feel like maybe they didn't think it through too clearly, they say, oh yes, we are able. You know, to me, this is a, a clear read the fine print type of situation. But when the other 10 disciples hear about it, they're mad. You know, who are you to put yourself above us, they, they want to say. And so Jesus, again, he has to call them all together. And he says this to the group. He says, you know that the rulers of the world lord it over their people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve and to give your life for the sake of others. This, this is Jesus' mission to his followers. This is what the Roman Empire fell to. Uh, not Germanic tribes, although that did come later, but to the gospel of Jesus. For the first time in history, an empire was overthrown without bloodshed and violence because of this ethic. Over the next 300 years, Christians lived out this ethic. They sought to serve rather than be served. They sought to give their lives for others, and this changed the world. After Jesus' death, the Apostle Paul actually summarized this ethic beautifully in his letter to the church in Philippi. This is what he said. He said, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what does this have to do with politics? I would argue everything. Our world is building one type of kingdom. Our world is looking to win, to amass power, privilege, and personal gain. This is what is normal and expected. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you operate under a completely different ethic. You live under a different king and in a different kingdom. One where you expect suffering, one where you expect sacrifice, one where you're expected to surrender your advantage so that others without those advantages may flourish. Now, one clarifying comment here. This does not mean that you are called to lay down and accept abuse, oppression, or systematic racism. Jesus taught at length about how we care for those on the margins. And the ethic of Jesus is what even brought us the idea that every child, every woman, and every man is created equal. The fact that we are all created in the image of God was revolutionary then, and it is revolutionary now. 
So this is a critical need that the church must fight for. Jesus expects the church to challenge systems and cultural forces that keep those in the margins in the margins. Jesus identifies with those who suffer, and so must we. But Jesus does more than just identify. Jesus built a new kingdom with those who suffer and for those who suffer. You see, the political system in Jesus' day was a mess. It was worse than a mess. It was horrific. The abuse of power was an expectation. Power in and of itself was seen as a virtue. The the powerful were meant to lord over the weak. And yet the ethic of Jesus and his followers changed the world. So church, our question today is, is pretty simple. It's what kingdom are we building? What loyalty comes first for us? Is it home and hearth, country and countrymen, or is it Jesus? Am I first and foremost looking to build a kingdom in which I flourish? Or am I looking to build a kingdom whose primary goal is that others may flourish? Which king, which ethic, and which kingdom will we choose to live under? My grandmother was actually a fantastic example of someone devoted to living under the kingdom of God. I get my middle name from that side of the family. My middle name is Wallum. It's a really fun name to say. Say it out loud. Wherever you're sitting, just say it out loud. Wallum. It just feels nice. It's my mom's maiden name, and it's a beautiful reminder of my Norwegian heritage. And the Wallum family has a unique term to us called walluming. To wallum is to somehow find a way to pay for something for someone without them knowing. For example, let's say you're out at dinner. You might get up to go to the bathroom, and instead on your way you take care of the check. It is considered an honor to somehow surprise others with generosity. My grandma Wallum was a master at this, and she became more committed to it the older she got. You know, I find there's, there's two ways that people can live life. You can grasp or you can give. Grandma Wallum gave and gave and gave over the last number of years. She found great joy in giving. She even left each of us a gift after she passed, and we laughed and wept together as we talked about how well we had been wallumed. This is the beauty of the Christian walk and the kingdom of God and the ethic of Jesus. Like my grandmother, we are called to give and give of our time and our resources. And for those of us who hold it, our power. As we give of ourselves, what happens is is you find freedom and joy. We find ourselves becoming more like Jesus. When we give of our lives, we surprisingly find our lives. And this is our calling as a church this season. I know there's great fear worry, anxiety, and confusion, and those feelings are justified. But we must never forget where our true citizenship is and what our true calling is. Church, as we enter into the next four years, we have a choice to make. Are we going to grasp or are we going to give? Will we fight for what's best for us personally or will we lay down our lives for the sake of others? Those of us with privilege, power, wealth, and authority, we have a responsibility to use each and every one of those gifts for the sake of others. A responsibility to take our earthly kingdom and to try to draw it into closer alignment with the kingdom of God. We are called to give, to serve, and to sacrifice, and we are called to serve a different king and build a different kingdom. So a couple of of, of simple next steps right in front of you right now. First, tonight at 7 p.m., we will gather as a church to pray. A month ago, we gathered to pray for repentance, and tonight we will gather to pray for renewal. A kingdom ethic recognizes that the only way forward is through the power, the love. It's through God. we, We have to access His strength, His power, His love. We have to build the kingdom with them. So join us tonight 
as we call upon God together as the body of Christ with one unified and yet diverse voice and ask him to bring about renewal. Secondly, coming up on November 15th through 20th is Global Awareness Week. This is the week every year where we intentionally turn our eyes outward towards the world, uh, where we focus on what our sisters and our brothers in Christ are doing all around the world. It's really a kingdom-focused week. So begin doing two things. Start praying for the week and prioritize participating in the week. What it'll, it'll do for you is it'll help lift up your eyes from the current situation you're in, reminding you that the world is larger and our God is greater than what we see in front of us on a given day. Uh, specifically, on Wednesday night, November 18th at 8 p.m., we'll host a special webinar called Life in Post-Election America, led by two of our incredible partners. I really invite you to join us that night. When the dust settles after this election, as eventually it has to, we will find ourselves encouraged or discouraged, excited or distraught. And in that, you will have a choice to make. Will you grasp your advantages more tightly or will you align yourself with Jesus? Give yourself to a different kingdom and give your life for the sake of others. Church, this season, may our attitudes be that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. May we do likewise. Amen.